Hey everyone, and welcome to Beyond GIS, the show that helps you leverage digital geography to make critical decisions in a changing world. I'm Kurt, your host and founder of Orbica, an organization committed to pioneering geospatial democracy. We're going to deep dive into topics like the role of geospatial and digital transformation, developments and opportunities in geospatial, space, earth observation, and helping you abolish silos for better collaboration and transparency and visibility. We're looking to drop a new episode every other Wednesday because we believe that everyone deserves to access and leverage the power of geospatial in the modern world. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond GIS. Uh, these are the best episodes where we actually interview some other folks, particularly if they're fellow Orbicans. So on that note, uh, here we've got Saga. Um, he is our AI expert, um, now GeoAI expert uh, at Orbica. And uh, we're gonna go on a bit of a journey and, and sort of see where it takes us. So Saga, how, uh, how did you come into this world of geospatial? You know, What did you do at uni, data science? Tell us a bit about your journey. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So again, yeah, thanks a lot for having me here. And I think I joined Orbica five, five and a half years ago, and where I'm sort of computer science background with masters in my machine learning. So no idea about GIS, projection, raster, vectors. So throughout like last five years, just sort of like learning exercise for me to understand the different terminology and the importance of the geospatial and then how I can bridge the gap between the geospatial technology and the AI technologies and then can able to build a sort of different end-to-end pipe to automatically extract and analyze the information from the geospatial data sets and even like come across a lots of different technical challenges and uh, different client expectation throughout the journey but it was like quite fascinating so far for me. So I mean there's so much to unpack there, but if we focus on those sort of roots of data science, right, your degree, classic data science, um, what are some of the sort of carryover techniques or methodologies that you've really brought to our world of geospatial um, and modernize some of the way we used to do things, whether that was inside desktop software or old methodological techniques? Yeah, what's your view on that? How, yeah. how data science has empowered the world of GIS? Yeah, so absolutely like a uh, couple of techniques like the advanced AI techniques nowadays which definitely help uh, to solve the geospatial problem in terms of like a computational power uh, in talking more about like the scalability of the model and the data set and how we can use a real-time GIS data set to get the insight out of that using some sort of AI techniques. So sort of like the mixed combination of the computational power with the advanced AI technique definitely help geospatial data sets to, to get the more insights. And even the geospatial data sets have their own complexity in terms of uh, size, mm. extent, projection, and then sort of like single band, multi-band sort of hyperspectral images. So by utilizing the power of uh, some sort of advanced technology with the uh, GPU optimized uh, libraries that can definitely uh, get the insights with the near real uh, time. I mean the GPU side, right? So that ability to do multi-threaded parallel processing um, has been a real eye-opener for us. I mean I, I talk in layman's terms, I call it computer vision on steroids. Yeah. A lot of the work we do, right? When so thinking about that, right, and the understanding and learning you now have around satellite information, satellite data, and that ability to stitch and mosaic all this stuff together 
and instead of doing um, is there a cat in this picture or not you're doing you know millions and millions of rows by millions and millions of other rows or pixels what does that look like you know what, what were some of those real learnings you've had to come overcome over the years for just the scale of this stuff yeah absolutely i think it's like a great question and that's something every day being a data scientist learning more about like how can i optimize it because that's one of the problem set of like issue that we are facing which is like how we can reduce the time to uh, load such a big data sets or to apply sort of a really optimized data wrangling techniques in able to get the insights out of that so the key role is like how we can create a scalable data pipe and data pre-processing pipe is really important uh, component in the GOAI project where how you're gonna slice and dice your uh, multi-tempolar uh, large-scale database and then uh, what sort of libraries tool and what sort of computational power you can use on top of that uh, to just reduce your time and then just uh, make the data available for the AI models. What's that? I mean, something I've always been struck by is it's like everything else we've talked about in different uh, episodes is rubbish in, rubbish out. So how do you reflect on that when you're tasked with identifying, I don't know, vegetation cover and how it's changed across the whole of the South Island? Now, what does that mean and what does that look like from a training data perspective? Because it's as good as the training data, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. So, so what, what are some of your learnings, thoughts that come to mind when we think about that? Uh, so again, like data is the key for uh, AI models and mainly like the, we keep forgetting the human in the loop component mm. in the AI models. We still need some sort of SMEs, some sort of human help to uh, make the data better because we know that like if we make the data better the AI model and the accuracy will definitely jump up and I think the most of the AI model that we are doing which is like a data centric model not the model centric model because we know that like if we know the domain knowledge if we uh, understand like sort of vegetation how they are growing uh, on sort of like which landscape like high elevation to low elevation those sort of information will definitely help AI model to uh, create a better uh, uh, AI output out of that. So uh, what you're sort of getting at there, um, so the training data um, is often augmented by other geospatial data. Yep. So it's not just, hey, have we got good training data that matches these pixels with vegetation? It's actually what other contextual information, topographic information can we bring along that provides the AI model context? I mean, it really is, right? Uh, when you think about convolutional neural nets or whatever, they really are trying to emulate how the mind operates, right? Yep. The human mind. And so topology, so height uh, is a key determinant, right? Yeah. Uh, rainfall, Absolutely, climate, yeah. soil conditions, geology. Um, so what does that look like? Incorporating like all these disparate elements that are joined together by location into your AI model when uh, typically you're just using pixels, right? Yes. But now you're reinforcing it with all this other stuff. Yeah. So, so, so what, yeah, uh, explain yeah. a process or an example. Yeah, absolutely. So like I think uh, to use uh, underlying the geospatial data sets in the layer will definitely help to create a right training data sets, a right training and validation data set because like it's easy to train the model, but like it's really hard when you validate the model, which data sets or which sort of landscape you look to validate the model performance. So over the time, like uh, we really, we really need sort of like uh, the land distribution information, how the land is changing, 
and by utilizing the power of uh, different geospatial data sets we can understand which pixel is different which land is different it's coming from north highland south highland and sort of all sort of like high elevation to low elevation uh, environments will definitely help a data scientist to clearly define a good training data set good validation data set and good uh, testing data set and once uh, we define that then we can able to create a really good model that can work across the different landscape uh, and the different uh, kind of uh, environmental uh, conditions mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the project. What um, <laughs> something we talk about quite a bit is, you know, you see all these claims in AI world about 99% accuracy or 96% accuracy. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Because you see a lot of the marketing buzz, but let's face it, when you actually get under the hood of some of the stuff, it ain't 96%. And so what's your view to, hey, we've built a model, we've trained it here, but really we should be talking ethically to a customer about, well, if you want to apply it over here, it's just, it's not going to be 96%. How do you think about all of that as a data scientist? And then actually being ethical and truthful and open about this stuff. So I think the accuracy is like one of the key component when we are doing the GOAI project, which is the client expectation on terms of accuracies. And then uh, when we say it's 99% accurate, like how we gonna define the accuracy mm -hmm. is really key component. That accuracy is just a model bias accuracy or the model is biased towards the training data sets or how you gonna do the actual ground validation in terms of that accuracy. On top of that, enable to understand uh, the uh, good accuracy matrices. So, like we've been involved in sort of exercise where we have a two sort of accuracy. The first accuracy is coming from the AI model and the second accuracy which is actually going to the location and doing the ground validation, what's exactly there on that location, which definitely help to uh, to understand like what's actually on the ground rather than what we are looking from the satellite or aerial images. And, and then uh, by utilizing that ground validation will definitely help AI model mm -hmm. on the next iteration when we retrain the model for that stuff. I guess as a lead on to that, what's your view to uh, open source pre-trained algorithms? But then they're so generic, right? Most often that you actually, there's all the marketing and buzz around that, but you apply it in a new country and nothing works. I don't know, what's your view to all of that? Because that opens up into this world of co-collaboration and, and better engagement, I think, with customers through data. Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, again, it's a great point. Like there are lots of different open source models are there. And again, uh, from open source model, what we can leverage is we can apply sort of transfer learning. So we don't mm -hmm. have to train the model on the millions of images. Uh, what we can use is we can utilize uh, the existing model, we can load that model, we can pass the new data set and then just optimize the model architecture based on the open source available mm -hmm. uh, layers. But one of the problem with the geospatial data set is like it comes with 3 band, 4 band, 12 band imagery. So not only the RGB, it has like a near infrared vegetation index and all sort of different remote sensing band where uh, most of the open source model have only three band model. So in, in, in that scenario, you cannot utilize the open source model. You have to create your own model or you might have to come across like you might have to come across the different kind of a uh, solution to do the transfer learning uh, based on uh, the different band imagery that you have. What um, 
It goes the other way around too, I imagine, right? So there'll be algorithms built on 12-band, yep. Sentinel satellite to, you know, um, but then actually for whatever reason, you can't use that source data. And, and so you've got the opposite problem, right? Yep. Where actually you've only got RGB to play with, but the model's trained off 12-bands. 12-bands. <laughs> I mean, in that scenario, as reinforcement learning, you would actually start from scratch, wouldn't you? Or like, how would you approach that? So basically, like, I'd still use... Uh, the three bands that's mm -hmm. available. So I will still use the weights and the okay. model uh, architecture that I get from the three bands and the rest of the bands, I will train the model from the scratch. Yeah, okay. So it's like if I have a three band model and now I have to train the 12 band model, then from the 12 band model, I can still use the three band mm -hmm. uh, parameters that I already have. I just have to tune the remaining uh, other parameters. Uh, and then that's how like uh, we can apply sort of a transfer learning techniques on that mm. but more we can leverage on the open source model yeah it's better because the open source model trained for like a millions of parameters mm -hmm. and like a number of like six to seven months and then on very large scale so it's really optimized and mm. the architecture is really good but like i haven't come across a geospatial uh, open source uh, model which trained for the 12 band and where we can use and apply sort of transfer learning on top of that yeah okay that's interesting um like the open source stuff is amazing. And that, that's what I like about the data science community. It's just so collaborative, right? There's so many places you guys can go to, what's a new model architecture, you know, all these methodologies yep. is incredible what's coming through the mix all the time. Um, you know, we've done a lot of different projects for a lot of different folks over the years. The hardest part in my mind is, there's two things, is putting it in production, but there's expectation setting as well, right? and. I guess, what's your view on that? The way I've been thinking about it a lot more lately is it's not the pixel perfection that matters. It's more focused on the time aspect of it, right? So is the trees, are the trees getting bigger or smaller or disappearing is more important than are the leaves, have we got every pixel of every leaf on the tree? Uh, how do you think about that in relation to absolute accuracy, pixel accuracy, versus actually it's better to have temporal trend coming out of the AI model? Uh, so again, yeah, this is like a really good uh, uh, component, which is like how we can visualize the AI results and how we can tell a story uh, by utilizing the different sort of type post-processing techniques uh, that I learned so far in the GIS world. Because like for data scientists, like even the higher the number, uh, the more good feeling I have out of the project. Mm -hmm. And like to get the higher number, we need to apply sort of post-processing techniques. And I came across uh, lots of different GIS uh, tools where they have a really good techniques where I can improve the accuracy, merge the layers, create a really nice web map, uh, sort of visualization output where we can, uh, that output can able to help a different uh, operational planning people to uh, decide the better outcome. And again, it, again, it depends. So uh, it depends on the resolution and mm -hmm. what sort of accuracy are we looking for. Uh, but having a pixel accuracy versus like uh, just having a detection output from the AI model, that's always like key component and key importance for uh, the dif uh, different uh, use case and different clients. Mm -hmm. Because it's okay like if AI does not give us like a complete outline of the trees, but the AI is still detecting, still identifying some part of the polygon that belongs to the tree. Because it might be AI is right that at that time, the, that tree has sort of like a different pixels or the tree is like half living, half dead. 
uh, and that's why like AI gave us a half living uh, polygon because mm-hmm. that was AI learned for. Yep. So AI does not know about the date tree. So at that time AI is right. So that sort of conversation we quite have with the client and we let them know that like AI is still doing what we teach to do. Uh, but like in some scenario, it's a vegetation. So there are lots of different things covered by mm-hmm. the vegetation and we need to understand the implications behind that. What, uh, so let's assume we've um, created an algorithm, a model of some description and associated sort of data pipeline, right? Ingestion of data, pre-processing, model, output. And it's running at, I don't know, 90% accuracy and it's really good um, for that use case. What are the difficulties in your world as a data scientist trying to actually put that thing into production? So it runs by itself on a, on a schedule uh, what are those implications? I mean, I, I always hear about you guys, you know, CUDA cores, versions of Ubuntu, versions of TensorFlow, PyTorch. What are the complexities there to actually productionize the ROI, the, the value of these things? Uh, yeah, so again, yeah, definitely there are like a different ways to, uh, uh, to, to do the productionized solution. Uh, but again, uh, it depends like, uh, it, it is like coming from the real-time satellite images or aerial images, the first question, because like to ingest those data set, it's another kind of like the pipe that we have to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to pre-process that data set uh, in a suitable way that AI can able to do the prediction on top of that, which is uh, the second thing. And then uh, it's always like the version controlling and sort of like the technological stack is always evolving and changing mm-hmm. a lot. So we need to understand and find out like based on the APIs and the libraries that we use to train the model, we sort of use sort of APIs and the architecture to productionize the model. Mm-hmm. And, and if some of the libraries are like out of date or something like that, then we definitely need to change those libraries when we are doing the productionizing uh, thing of the AI model. And it's, it's like, it's sort of understanding uh, for the GOI project, like when you have a geospatial libraries from the open source community, we have AI libraries coming from the open source mm-hmm. com- community. And when you are doing the productionization solution by bringing these two technology, then lots of things will change and evolve over a time. So we really need to like keep an eye and keep up to date on the stake that we are using. So what's that mean though, right? So if you're a CIO and you're in charge of the technology platforms, I guess, that can enable these workloads. I mean, that's a lot of stuff going on, right? And so uh, I see data scientists, just like geospatial, you know, geospatial specialists, we're all tinkerers. We're all trying to play with the latest, coolest thing. But actually, how does that work in production? And I guess we need to step back a little bit and go, hey, this is the pipe, it's achieving this thing, like let's maintain that as it is with the required libraries, plugins, infrastructure. Uh, because if we keep tinkering all the time, it's very difficult, right, yep. to keep up with it. And um, there's not many data scientists and geospatial people combined together. So I, I don't know, it's sort of that balance on being on the cutting edge and tinkering, but never actually getting anything working forever for a business. How do you look at that? Uh, so yeah, like again, uh, it's it's like I think the one of the biggest problem in the machine learning productionization or MLOps kind of thing, like how you can 
keep the version controlling mm -hmm. based on your model because like in our AI world we probably have a thousand of models going around so how you can backtrack of each mm -hmm. and every model to understand like this model is good enough this model is not good enough and to decide like uh, this model goes to the production and then on on top of that like we still need to uh, look for the latest libraries and the version controlling for that model uh, enable to uh, enable to just uh, run the end-to-end -end pipeline on on the productionization solution or on the cloud so when we think about the vision here at Orbica to try and make what is complex simpler and more accessible to more people. Um, so if we think about what we're building here around the analytic aspect of, of the platform, which will be embedded temporal, geospatial and AI goodness all in the mix. I mean, what excites you most about that? Particularly, you know, how, what are some of the bits you're excited about from our learnings so you can bring and empower geospatial to other data scientists elsewhere? Uh, what are you yep. most excited about in amongst that? So I, I think the most exciting thing which is the data fusion of these three different things and there are lots of learnings, lots of limitations uh, and then lots of challenges. Mm. Challenges come across because like when you are merging and bridging the gap between these two technologies, geospatial and AI, you need to define sort of specification because like geospatial data set comes with their own specification mm -hmm. and AI models and AI inputs require sort of their own specifications. So it's just like uh, creating a really good specification that can bridge the gap between these two technology. That's like the one of the key component mm -hmm. for like as a geospatial data scientist, like what is the best way and what is the framework look like if I if I have this kind of geospatial data set and if I want to run this kind of model, what sort of combinations mm -hmm. of the specification look like to able to create the end-to-end -end pipe out of that. Yeah, amazing. So, you know, the five and a half years of all this learning and failure and successes and everything else, I mean, that to me is the challenge I've given you and the team around how do we expose that and all those learnings so another data scientist can catch up to kind of where you're at, but they can do that now in a week, in two weeks, because you can help provide the framework, the specifications, the tool sets to that. Um, that must be awesome, right? Yep, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, so again, how you spread and educate, but empower all the other data scientists with Geospatial. Yep, so it's like, how can I uh, get the burden of like handling such a massive data set and then coming with the lots of different like a jargon word in the geospatial industry like the projection and the rasters and the vector all sort of thing uh, for computer science and for the ai it's just like image and then the mask that's it yeah. so now you have an image you have a mask you have to train it but in able to create the image and mask from the geospatial data set we need to understand clearly all sort of different projection thing the geotiff and then sort of multi-band single band kind of data fusion kind of terminology so that's something like mm -hmm. uh, the platform that uh, something that we are building will definitely have sort of like a really good uh, specification for that. So how we can just uh, fuse those data sets mm -hmm. and then within a seconds, like we can able to create the models. So, so you've touched, you touched a little bit there on sort of the jargon and the tools, I guess, kind of. What's your view on that? Because what excites me a lot about the data science world, data analytics generally is, you know, really it's Python and R, primarily. Uh, there's proprietary stuff out there, of course. Yep. I don't know. What, what's your view on just the scale and the growing... Everybody's using Python and R, right? Yep. And it allows you to get 
right into the base to tweak, to play with, to optimize. Uh, how do you look at all of that and then the consequent ability to then collaborate with many others because you're actually speaking the same language? Yep. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a great question. And I think like uh, the way to collaborate with each other, which is like uh, just to sharing uh, the approaches and the workflow that we learned mm -hmm. so far and then we created because uh, there are lots of different things out there. It's like which one to use, which one not to use. Mm -hmm. uh, but just sharing a really good, nice workflow or sort of like a process and steps to bring the geospatial mm -hmm. data set into the AI model. What is the workflow look like? Uh, that would be like the ideal case that will definitely help the data scientist to just understand and not mucking, up, uh, mucking around the different geospatial data sets and different things and then just have the uh, data analysis ready data straight away mm. coming from the geospatial industry mm. to the AI industry. Yeah, I mean, that's a bit that I see so much inertia is um, everyone is always having to relearn how do I mosaic this data together, download this data, how do I normalize the bands on this thing, you know, whatever it is, which actually is all just data prep to being ready to actually do the real work, which is, you know, create the model, find the trees, find the water, find the this, find the that. Um, so anything to break down that inertia, right, must be important. And it allows data scientists to do what they do best. Yep, absolutely, yeah. What, uh, okay, so if you put a business hat on, the other element of risk I always see here is, um, uh, and it's probably part of the fact it's a really new sector, but many data scientists, they seem to move around a lot, right? And probably just getting different experiences in different workplaces, different, you know, different career experiences. But what that means though, if you put your hat on as a business, all that institutional knowledge keeps disappearing. And we've been involved in so many projects where we're working with a data scientist six months later, they've gone. And it's like actually working back to scratch again with that organization that's all gone. So what does that look like from a documentation sort of perspective of the algorithms, the models? So it's actually for the organization because data scientists or anybody else might come and go. Yep. And what's your view on that? So it actually stays institutional knowledge. Yeah, so I think the documentation is really important and again we can document uh, the AI side of the thing, the models and other stuff but to having a clear documentation like what sort of analysis mm. that we started from the scratch to bring the data into the AI model and then uh, what are the different things that we tried learn over time. Mm and it's it's also important to understand and break down by individual modules like what sort of uh, features that are important and what sort of steps are really important to get you these kind of data sets mm -hmm. so to document that again like it's sort of the methodology is really important to mm -hmm. document uh, like you cannot uh, just go too detail in that one but you know sort of like the buffer and convexal and the minimum uh, rounding circles and sort of the tools that we use from the GIS uh, softwares that help me to create these sort of analysis ready data sets for my AI model mm -hmm. and then there will be uh, and then it's like another documentation from the AI side where you can back trace all sort of like the losses J card segmentation model, classification model, and how the model evolve over the time, mm -hmm. and what sort of like the accuracy matrices look like. So what sort of like uh, accuracy dashboard coming from the AI model and why we trust mm -hmm. this AI model based on these sort of like the uh, accuracy matrices that we have at the end. Mm. 
But yeah. it's still learning. It's still evolving. Like that is not a perfect way. No, no, yeah, no. yeah. It's still uh, evolving over time. Yeah. It's documenting all that iterative development, right? That goes on. Hey, we learned this. Now we do this. Now we do this. Now we do this. Um, but there's assumptions everywhere, and so it's just understanding that. Yep. So I mean, actually, on that, right? If we think that classic, we talk about it a lot: white box versus black box. You, you know, what does that mean in your world of data science, and particularly some of the other stuff out there? It's super black box. But you just have to trust this thing inherently, and you know we can visually see it's no good. I, I don't know what's that look like. What's it feel like? Uh, uh, yeah, so like I think uh, in a couple of years ago, like I think that uh, uh, interpretable AI, sort of white box AI, mm. is like just gaining more interest mm. and more interest from the decision makers, more interest for the client to understand why AI picked that, not that. And mm. I think that field is evolving. Mm. And now I think the most of the models we can uh, using sort of interpretable libraries or explainable mm. AI, we can able to decode the model and then find out the reasoning behind that because the model is based on the statistics, based on the pixels. So might be right, like definitely 99% time it's always right. It's based on what sort of learning it has, but it's just like, adding the human component and just decode the model mm. part to able to understand the reasoning behind that will uh, just open the human mind at the end. Yeah. yeah. So we change gears. We've talked quite a lot about satellite data, yeah, pixels basically, yep. um, computer vision on steroids. Uh, we've done some interesting stuff with vectors. Yes. You know, and you don't see as much of this vectorized AI really, because it's different, it's harder, it's not pixels. Um, I don't know. Talk to us a bit about that. Maybe one of the projects. I know we did that really interesting road safety stuff in in, uh, in Europe. Um, I don't know. Tell us a bit of your thoughts with AI, convolutional neural nets, machine learning, deep learning, um, and vector based. So, like every time when we have a different data set, it's a new challenge for us. Uh, how we can convert those data set into the analysis ready for the AI models, and especially in terms of like the vectors, uh, which we don't have like a pixels or which we we cannot see the vectors like it's you need to load in the GIS software enable to see the WKTs or the geometries behind the vectors so for for this kind of like scenario we really need like uh, geospatial tools and the softwares where we can visualize the vectors and vectors comes with sort of different unique features so sort of like the area uh, perimeter length so they are based on like polygons or points and if it is polygon then we know that like they have sort of unique features mm -hmm. and if they if they have a unique features then we can definitely use that unique features to train the AI model enable to get a really good output so say for example like uh, different water bodies like river mm -hmm. lake lagoon canal so if we have a vector data set for just the water bodies then based on the geometry, based on the size, shape, area, perimeter kind of mm -hmm. information, because like the lake are more straight, uh, more flat compared to the rivers, and the uh, uh, and then the other uh, different water bodies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can like leverage uh, those sort of thing, and uh, then I mean that was interesting to me with the water body example because you're classifying. So imagery pulls out water, vectorized AI can now look at it and classify um, based on you know vector type, shape, length, yep. sinuosity, all of that sort of stuff. What about the complexities of 
lots of vector data, classic GIS problem, nothing ever quite overlays often, right? So the roads and then the buildings could be overlapping, you know, whatever it is. How, how, how do you, how have you dealt with some of that stuff? Um, and then 3D as well, actually that road safety stuff, right? Because you had rasters in there too. Yep. I don't know, weather type stuff. So rasters on top of vectors, on top of 3D for like Vueshed and Sunstrike. Yep. How do you mix it all together so it's something that AI can actually deal with? So again, like uh, to create the data fusion, uh, uh, so like the road safety project is like one of the challenging projects that I work so far in Olbika, which is like how we can combine the weather data sets, uh, road geometries, road polygons, uh, with sort of like a climate data sets, and then understand the different uh, scenarios, like what time, what day, the road become more dangerous sort of analysis that we have to do at the end, uh, where to apply sort of data fusion, like it took around like two sprint completely, uh, to just merge and do the data wrangling. And when we are doing uh, merging of this data set, the location is really important thing because like we can match each uh, data sets or each point based on the location. And then based on this location, we have sort of like nine or 10 different layers on the same location. And that information we can pass to the AI model mm -hmm. to understand more about this location. And the temporality is another mm -hmm. key component in that location. So what time, what day, uh, the road features are changing over time, and then what sort of AI techniques we can uh, use to solve that problem. And I think like we use uh, some of the uh, AI techniques uh, used by the cancer professionals to cure the cancer or to find out how, how long it will take uh, for, uh, to, to, get, to get the cancer, something like that. So at that time, we use sort of like a mm -hmm. different AI technique in that as well. Yeah, she's a good point. I mean, I've always found that interesting, right? Like some of the medical yep. AI architectures, algorithms you've applied to satellite imagery. But actually, when you think about it, if you zoom out at the different extents, right? I mean, a forest could look like a cell, yep. you know, on a radiography type exam. It's pretty interesting. That's what I love about it, how you start to apply different thinking across different places to, again, not necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. Um, yep. I mean, one thing you see a lot of folks doing is they convert everything back to sort of more classic database, you know, CSV type approaches, I guess, to AI. But, you know, one of the challenges is keeping it location aware, right? So actually that point, it's a location, it's buffer, whatever, is a spatial relationship to other data. So that's been a challenge, hasn't it? Thinking yep. about that in a sort of live AI model that it's not just that piece of data, it's its relationship to everything around it, classic geospatial. So how have you sort of thought about that uh, in what you do? Yeah, so again, that's like, uh, it's sort of like the post-processing pipe mm -hmm. that once we have the results coming from the AI model, how we can assign the location or how we can convert those pixels in sort of like a location-based attribute. So we can understand or, and we can apply sort of a different geoprocessing operation on top of that. And like just playing with uh, lots of different AI models and the results coming from the AI models has like a lots of complex geometries or complex mm -hmm. pixels. So that's sort of like a biggest technical challenge that like uh, one of the project I have like a 2 million geometries or 2 million trees coming from the AI model. Now how can you combine, how can you merge, how can you uh, clean those data sets? So at that time, like uh, you really need uh, geospatial tools and the power of GIS and the knowledge of GIS mm -hmm. enable to clean and 
improve the accuracy of the data that you already have uh, and then uh, just assign the location and understand uh, the, the different uh, topological information that's coming from the geo AI layer that we call it. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's sort of like how you can visualize. So again, geospatial uh, help data scientists in two way first to create a really good pre-processing pipe mm -hmm. to find out a really good training validation data set based on the different landscapes because every land is different, every pixel is different and you cannot use like the whole country data set to train the model otherwise yeah it will take lots of time yeah. So we need to understand sort of variations and the distribution of the pixels mm -hmm. so at the first stage we need a geospatial tools and techniques in pre-processing module. Mm -hmm to define a really good landscape and then once we define that then in the post-processing module we really need sort of uh, geospatial libraries to to visualize the data sets or to visualize a really good or big complex layer that mm -hmm. coming out of the AI model how we can visualize that on a map or sort of uh, interface yeah. yeah. It's interesting so if we take the trees example um because again, it's a piecing together of different techniques and technologies. So your AI model, the way you've optimized pipelines now, you can spit out millions and millions of vertices, features, whatever it is. But the next struggle is actually making it into a consumable data set that a GIS platform or software can use, right? So I keep hearing about how we keep crashing desktop tools and you, you know, you, how many motherboards have you burnt? Three. <laughs> Three <Something>. motherboards <laughs> on your beast computer. Uh, what does that look like? And then obviously now you're now lifting and shifting your workloads to the clouds, which is what Allbook is focused on. How are you seeing all of that? Uh, the work you've done with Shady, Shady recently, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so, explain a bit of that. Yeah, again, yeah, it just like uh, it's like uh, just getting rid of the biggest problems or challenges that we face so far, which is like handling those sort of like a million geometries on the classic uh, desktop tools mm. and there is like uh, it's it's not like efficient way to able to uh, apply and to able to do some sort of geo processing but again uh, what we uh, develop here in this orbica which is like how we can deploy or how we can push the ai results straight away inside a spatial database uh, and then how we can do sort of the post processing techniques on the cloud where uh, we can scale the uh, number of like a uh, different resources and we can just clean a really uh, we can get really good output a uh, clean mm -hmm. output coming from the different uh, gis data sets yeah so yeah. that's something like we already been uh, applied for the new zealand wide model that we are currently working on and like in the in my normal computer it took around like 12 hours to do sort of geo processing operations but now in the cloud and in the database it's taking around one hour mm. so that's sort of like the time uh, redu reduction that we have and will definitely uh, help a lot to to get the more outputs uh, in the near real time it's interesting right that's a 12 weeks reduction and it's probably just one of the test versions right like you haven't scaled it out no. i imagine so it's interesting right because we often talk with customers about the cost of gpus or cloud or whatever it is um, What's your view on that? Because actually, all of a sudden, you've got 11 more hours as a data scientist to do something, to innovate, yep. instead of sit there waiting for the computer to hopefully not crash. What does that mean? Because it's very easy to go, oh, the cost is three grand a month or whatever it is on the cloud, right? But how much is the salary and all the lost time and all the lost innovation? 
I don't know. As a data scientist, what does that mean to you? I think it's it's it mean me it's mean like a lot to me because like uh, it's just like waiting and just just uh, uh, just watching a screen without doing anything, which is like uh, not good for data scientists. But like uh, to understand, there are better tools available, better uh, geospatial databases available, where you can do sort of like the spatial things uh, very quickly, very fastly. And you don't need uh, to wait like that mm. 11 hours to get the mm. results. Like, just okay. use the power of GIS and all sort of like the distributor database that's available, mm. which can definitely uh, help a data scientist. Uh, I mean, I mean, that was always our vision, right, from day one, is how to bring the best of geospatial and AI content together. And uh, it's just a great example of yeah, you know, absolutely, use yeah. the right tools in the right yeah. places. And actually, the data science tool sets, well, geospatial has been doing it forever. And we can spatially optimize that inside a cloud-native scalable database solution. Why are we trying to do that on the desktop or tools it's not built for? Yeah. And you know the end outcome of that is much more value, much faster, I guess. Yep. And like being a data scientist, yeah, that's like always communicate with the GIS people. Whenever I face a problem, yeah, I just go and just talk with the GIS people and just ask them like, what is the best way to solve this problem? Like, have you come across with the million geometries or have you come across the shape file, which has like more than four GB of data sets? Like, what is the best way to show, store the geospatial data sets? Mm -hmm. Because the AI model is producing a really good uh, high definition output. And what is the best way, like, do we need to downscale, upscale yep. uh, sort of geometry? So do we need to simplify thing? So always like just, uh, just I would say like always asking a hard question to the GIS people <laughs> and then just finding the best solution to able to yeah. ingest inside the AI pipe. We've talked a bit about, quite a bit about obviously data science, geospatial, bringing it together. You've talked about human in the loop actually, because they're the ones that understand the data. Uh, hydrologist, environmental scientist, tree specialist, wildfire specialist, right? What does that look like in terms of bringing the customer's ECME knowledge into the development of an algorithm or a data pipeline? So I think like SME knowledge is, I think, really a key component for training a really good model. Mm. Because like there are lots of different caveats and lots of different things where which species belongs to which color and then uh, if the species are overlapping to each other what should we class it if the pixels or if there is something on top of the species like snow or a different sort of like a vegetation how are we going to class it so mm -hmm. all sort of like a bringing client on a journey on sme on a journey throughout the ai project mm -hmm. and most of the GUI project is like a learning exercise for us and for the client mm -hmm. as well because like when we understand the data in more detailed way, we can come across a lots of different questions. And those questions we need to certainly define with the client mm. to define the accuracy, to define the limitation of the models that we are going to train. And it's always like upfront conversation initially with the client. And that's something we've been like uh, getting a success out of like having that conversation with the client and helping them uh, to understand the data and then get their help as SMEs to define sort of like a more generic patterns or more generic features mm. uh, to create a really good model out of that. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. So as we sort of uh, look to wrap up, um, I don't know, what's, what's one of the projects you look back on that you're maybe the most proud of or I don't know, the one that you're most excited about really in the past? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, there are like uh, two projects that something I really, really like utilizing the power of geospatial and AI, which is the first one, which is the, again the road safety one, mm. where I have rasters, vectors, I have sort of like DM, DSM, I have data coming from like a uh, here map, uh, real traffic information, the weather information, so which is like. 11 or 12 different data sources coming along mm. and how we can create a data fusion out of that uh, for the AI model and that like it's one of the interesting project mm. and like adding the temporality in that component which is like one day data or one hour data or like uh, one minute data so when you just go and add the temporality the scale will gonna increase and then you need to understand the impact and the importance of the temporality for the mm -hmm. data sets. Uh, so that's the one of the uh, interesting project that I work so far. And the second one, which is like uh, creating a national wide uh, tree layer, which is really important uh, to understand, like we don't need much training data set. So we are using only 1% of the data set to train the model. And now we are getting 80, 85% accuracy from satellite images, which has 10 meter resolution. Mm. Uh, and we are generating like around 2 million geometries uh, uh, coming out from the AI models for that project. Yeah, it's amazing. What, what's one of the biggest data sets you've worked with in terms of scale or gigabytes or? Uh, so I think like a uh, 3D point cloud data set that I work yeah, yeah. so far because we have like a three dimensional data sets yeah. and and apart from that like we have a multi band imageries mm -hmm. coming from 12 band or we have hyperspectral band so which is 16 band mm -hmm. so when we have sort of like 12 and 16 and all sort of different data set then it's like spending more time on doing the data wrangling part mm -hmm. uh, because like we need to understand the right APIs and right algorithms to able to find out the different uh, signatures of the different band. Mm. Looking forward, uh, what are you most excited about as we build out and start deploying the platform? Um, so I guess like, uh, yeah, for the platform side, I definitely like uh, just having sort of framework for the geo geospatial people and the AI people. What is the best practices? What is the best way? What is the best architecture to able to scale a geospatial or uh, geo AI projects? Mm and that can leverage satellite aerial or sort of different imagery and then just just creating the model so don't have to worry about sort of data wrangling side of the pre-processing mm -hmm. side that been uh, uh, that's like bit of like bottleneck for the data scientists so they don't know more about the GIS they don't know how to uh, use the different tools mm -hmm. in the geospatial to bring the data to bring the analysis ready data set for the AI model so that's something I'm really excited to uh, see how we can uh, move to that pathway so the data scientists don't have to worry about all sort of the geospatial jargons yeah. and then just focus on the AI and the data science and create the really good model out of that. Yeah, no, amazing. Um, hey, look, thanks heaps, Saga. Uh, if you want to reach out to Saga, we'll leave his details down the bottom. You can find him pretty easily on LinkedIn. Um, I'm sure he'd be super interested to talk to uh other data scientists that are exploring and using geospatial or those that want to. So um, thanks heaps. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Pleasure as always. Thanks cool. a lot. And uh, look, that wraps up another episode of Beyond GIS. Uh, see you next time. 
Alrighty, I hope that was helpful and you got some good content or ideas out of today's episode. If you have any questions, find me on LinkedIn, check the show notes below for the spelling and link, or reach out to us at orbica.com, and I'll catch you in the next one.